Welcome to the British Tinnitus Association podcast. We're here today to talk about Tinnitus Week, which runs from the 3rd to the 9th of February, and the focus this year is on research. My name's Georgina Burns O'Connell, and I'm the research officer at the British Tinnitus Association, and I'll be your host today. Firstly, what is tinnitus? Tinnitus is a noise or noises heard in the head or ears without an external source. Commonly, it's referred to as ringing or buzzing in the ear. Anybody can experience it at any age and from any background. Over 7 million adults live with tinnitus in the UK. Today, I've got two guests with me, if you'd like to just introduce yourselves. Yep, so David Stockdale, Chief Executive of the British Tinnitus Association, and I've been with the BTA for 10 years. Uh, I'm Derek Hoare, and I'm an Associate Professor in Hearing Sciences. I, I've been a tinnitus researcher for 10 years now. I'm also Chair of the British Society of Audiology. Great. Thank you both very much for joining us today. So we're just going to talk a bit about the um, key topics within tinnitus research today. There will be a quick Q&A section um, in the middle. Um, But to start, I thought we could just talk about the key areas of tinnitus research. So starting with um, management or treatment research. So I think a really interesting new area at the moment is looking at bimodal stimulation and by that we mean looking at a way to um, stimulate hearing so using sound but also then through a different technique as well looking at stimulating a different sense to see if that helps with um, tinnitus and, and can help people manage tinnitus and there's a lot of research going on about that at the moment and there's a lot of sort of real um, developing and emerging areas that are really exciting both um, in the UK in Ireland and also across in the US. I'd, I'd agree. This neuromodulation, so actually trying to change the underlying brain activity that that is responsible for generating tinnitus, it's a really interesting and very, very exciting area. Mm. I think that a, a number of researchers are now moving into, including ourselves in Nottingham, thinking about the use of electrical stimulation to actually change that underlying brain activity. And so how would you do that electrical stimulation? So we have a, a, a standard um, intervention, a standard treatment that, that's used in other conditions called transcranial direct current stimulation. And it simply involves actually putting two electrodes on the brain, on the, on the surface of the scalp and passing a small electric current between these two electrodes. So that the idea being that the electricity um, passes through an area of the brain that where you either want to increase the brain activity or you want to reduce the brain activity. Right, okay. And so how does that fit in with researching for a cure for tinnitus then? That's, a, I think, a very big question. <laughs> um, I think cure itself is a very big question, in fact, mm-hmm. of what, what we actually mean by a cure. Yeah. Um, I think when we think about transcranial direct current stimulation or any of these kind of neuromodulation type treatments, um, what, we're th- what we're really thinking about in the first instance is, is the percept, so the actual sound that people are hearing and, and addressing that sound and, and reducing that sound or changing that sound into something that is less bothersome, less distressing for the individual. It doesn't really address um, what is obviously very common in, in, in people who have tinnitus in that they are distressed and it is having a negative consequence for them. Um, that also needs to be addressed, I think, alongside uh, addressing the underlying brain activity. Yeah, absolutely. I'd agree with Derek as well. I think it's it's quite a loaded question in terms of what it means for a cure because it depends how you define cure. Do you define cure as obliterating the tinnitus sound, which many people do, to to silence tinnitus, if you like, 
Or do you see it more of a spectrum where you want to help people to manage tinnitus effectively and get quality of life back? And for some, that would be enough, but not yeah. for everyone. So it's it's very much still have this very active debate, I think, about what you want from tinnitus management, tinnitus support, or what you mean by a tinnitus cure as well. And mm-hmm. and I think it's a very active debate in, in research, in clinics, and also amongst people living with tinnitus mm-hmm. as well um, and we see that in in some of the most, most recent research as well so some really interesting research came out of the US looking at um, different um, potential outcomes and, and what outcomes a clinician wanted from an intervention with a tinnitus patient and what a tinnitus patient expects from that as well mm-hmm. and and actually what that showed was, was there's quite a difference with clinicians wanting to help someone manage tinnitus effectively and thinking that was an, a goal Whereas a, a patient turning up wanted the sound to, to disappear. Mm. And actually, when you start down a treatment pathway with those two different expectations, then it, it makes management quite a challenge, I think. So again, it's looking at this continuum, if you like, this spectrum and, and deciding where the intervention fits. Mm. And I think a lot of what we're talking about there with um, neuromodulation and biomodal stimulation i'd say is management rather than cure at the moment because it is looking to to reduce not obliterate that sound or or to to help someone manage tinnitus effectively as well so it is Mm -hmm. even within that the definitions become quite a challenge i think so in terms of researching a cure how does research around biomarkers fit in with that biomarkers or an objective measure for tinnitus which are slightly different things but often get conflated um, I think are, are both very important to 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 look at in terms of increasing investment in tinnitus research towards a cure so um, there's been a lot of um, trials in the, the pharmaceutical space recently most have failed mm-hmm. and a lot of what those companies and and organizations that have been running those trials are saying is what we need for increased investment from here is is a way to objectively measure tinnitus or a biomarker that we can can use to assess the the impact of that intervention mm-hmm. and it very much feels like if we're able to do that if we're able to find an objective marker or or find a biomarker then it would very much open the floodgates for investment if you like from industry from from big pharma as well as some of the the um, other players that are involved at the moment and really allow us to 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 open up that space really to, to much bigger um, trials that are happening at the moment. I, I think cure really as, uh, by definition is is what the outcome is for the patient what that patient wants as their particular outcome. So I, I think you know if we're thinking about obliteration as an option um, I think that is an option that, that should be there. We know that options for tinnitus patients are really really important and certainly some work funded previously by the British Tinnitus Association conducted by Helen Price was very, very useful in actually helping that shared decision making between clinicians and patients uh, come to the fore. But they have a limited number of options currently. So so we do need options and we do we need them to be very informed options. I think we've had a lot of years now where we've been collecting self-report data so information that, that patients are reporting themselves as opposed to things that we're actually measuring um, precisely, so the things that we can measure within within blood that might indicate that a particular treatment option is likely to be the most effective or the most useful for a particular individual. We're not able to do that now. We're not able to to have that precision really, and so we are left with a little trial and error situation yeah. that we really really need to get on top of. Um, and can you tell us a bit about what the British Tinnitus Association are doing around um, biomarker research or looking for objective measures and 
have we got any aims in that area? So the BTA has been on a bit of a journey, I think, over the last uh, 12 to 18 months, really. So we started that with trying to plot where research was up to, what we understood about tinnitus research to date, and we produced that in our in our cure map. Um, we then used that to develop a paper um, that we published called Why is there no cure for tinnitus, which tried to look at where we'd got to and what the routes forward were from that. And then we've really used that to then, in January, host a roundtable event in the House of Commons where we got Derek and other esteemed researchers, politicians, health organisations and funders together and said, look, so this is where we've got to. We know how many patients go into the NHS for tinnitus treatment. We know how much tinnitus treatment costs the NHS. We know the societal cost of tinnitus. And actually, we know where we've got up to. So, And we know there's, there's real issues. So, for instance, tinnitus um, receives... 40 times less research funding than similar conditions. So so with all this knowledge, how do we move forward? How do we get researchers together? How do we get the funders to look at it in a different way? And how do we really start to drive that forward and, and progress it? And part of that is is work that we're now doing with, with Derek's institution in Nottingham to look at, is it possible to set up a biobank? which may then start to answer some of these issues around objective measures, around biomarkers, and potentially start to look at how we subtype tinnitus. So look at how we develop different categories of tinnitus, which would then hugely push forward all research, not just research towards a cure, but potentially research in in other domains as well. Once we have those subtypes, once we have an objective measure, of course, it's really important to emphasise that's going to impact on all tinnitus research, mostly on the cure research, but it will impact on management research as well. Um, could you just explain what a biobank is, please? Um, a biobank is essentially a repository of, of information about an individual. And so we would be able to, with time, um, gather details about the chemistry of, in, of people's blood, and the, the proteins, the, the hormones, what, whatever we think is going to be important to measure within an individual um, so that we can eventually start to subtype according to those measures. Um, so it's essentially a very large database that we can really interrogate, we, we, can, we can look to as our immediate, our first point of information. If we have a question, so if we think vitamin B12, for example, is really important in tinnitus, you know, we, we have a large data set that we can go and we can interrogate and we can see whether it's something that is worth pursuing, whether it's something that really defines a particular population, and, and we can use that then to inform treatment decision making. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so it seems like a good time to talk about um, how tinnitus can be experienced differently, because um, We've used the word subtype a couple of times. Um, so if you'd like to explain what a subtype is. Whenever you go to a conference and tinnitus is discussed um, and they talk about um, subtypes or the heterogeneity of tinnitus, the image that often gets used is a bowl full of M&Ms where you've got every different type of M&M in a bowl. And that's really what happens in tinnitus research now. You might have some ways to categorise or to define a research trial. So you might do that by the duration of tinnitus or how long someone's had tinnitus for. But beyond that, pretty much everyone is lumped into any trial if they're willing to go on it. And actually, if you started to unpick that, if you spoke to two people in the waiting room waiting to go there, actually one might have got tinnitus through you know, a traditional general wear and tear to the, to the ear, so some 
hearing loss and the other might have got it through a bang to the head or through being in a car crash. Mm-hmm. And so when you've got such different causes of tinnitus and actually those two people then might experience the tinnitus very differently as well, then who's to say that actually they both have the same thing and therefore that the treatment options is the same for both. But at the moment, they'd both be, they'd both come to a tinnitus clinic and receive the same treatment pathway pretty much. Mm-hmm. So actually what we need to do is start to tease out some of those differences and understand what subtypes there are and what subtypes are meaningful. Because it might be that we need to subtype by the cause, but that might actually be irrelevant. We might need to subtype by severity of tinnitus or by genetics or by something as yet we haven't discovered. Again, I, I completely agree. It's, it's a real problem and it's a problem for researchers. And I think it explains or potentially explains how a number of previous studies um, have, have not found or been able to progress. So, so they've reached a conclusion, for example, that a new drug molecule is not effective. But actually, if you are grouping people together where tinnitus is perhaps g- generated because of some damage to the ear, versus damage to the brainstem, if you're grouping those together and you're using a drug that acts predominantly on the ear, then everybody whose who's tinnitus is generated because of a, a problem within the brainstem will not respond to it. And mm. yet we're, we're treating all of these individuals as, as the same. We know that people with tinnitus are different and we need to treat them differently. Yeah. I think that's a really valid point as well. So when you go and see some of these research projects presented, you'll get the sort of the the standard graph, if you like, where everyone's lumped in. But often then people will show a graph of individuals as well. And actually, it just looks so messy once you see that, because you see some people who have really severe tinnitus almost recover it seems like they've not got tinnitus anymore some seem to stay the same some get worse and it's just that real jumble until we have a way to untangle that it feels like running tinnitus trials at the moment is is a bit of a it's a bit of a challenge because of that and until we do really start to tease that out it feels again it's a real limiting factor on on how we can progress with research one of the questions we got on social media um, was how can people get involved in tinnitus research um, I mean, I, I would hope and that most clinicians will inform everybody. It's a, certainly a duty of clinicians to inform their patients about ongoing research that uh, that is relevant to them. Um, we do, of course, um, use um, as many databases to promote our studies as possible. We do take them to uh, online social media, etc. So we do advertise as widely as we can. Um, but we do hold a database actually in Nottingham. Uh, for individuals who are interested in, in research. We might not have any studies that are relevant to an in- individual at any uh, at the time that they get in touch with us, but if they're, if they're consenting, we can certainly have them on our database and inform them of studies as and when they arrive that are relevant to them. One way is to, to sign up for trials. It's, it's always surprising to me how many trials struggle to recruit internetists, mm-hmm. despite the fact that you hear how interested and motivated people are to, to be part of trials. So many seem to struggle with recruitment. It's, it's a bit of a contradiction that doesn't quite make sense at the moment and one I certainly don't really understand. Beyond that, um, I mentioned earlier the Tinnitus Roundtable that we ran last month and a key um, outcome from that when speaking to, to, to some of the politicians around the table was that they were saying, so it's fantastic, the progress you've made is really good, but actually what you need to do now is is motivate that base to write to their MPs and to sign the petition that we're looking to to have um, live during Tinnitus Week as well, to to really say tinnitus is an issue, you need to make take this seriously and you need to make sure that we do invest more in tinnitus research. And that's only going to happen if we can 
get people with tinnitus to, to agitate, if you like, to make their voices heard, to make it known that we do need more research and we do need more people to do that and to write to their MP, which is a key message that we're getting out during this tinnitus week as well to, to really do that. Because without that, without that voice, we're just one voice amongst many. We need to be lots and lots of voices saying the same thing and really um, hammering that message home. Absolutely. Um, and just to add that people can find that petition um, and information about contacting their MP on our website at tinnitus.org.uk. So we asked some people for some questions on social media. We said that we were doing this podcast and there was there was some interest around research that's currently going on in tinnitus, in the field of tinnitus. Um, so I've got a couple of quick questions for you. So the first one is this is for you, David. Um, in the past, BTA has funded psychological studies. Do you think psychological studies are still relevant in 2020? Um, I'd broaden it from psychological studies. I mean, we have funded psychological studies and work in um, CBT and mindfulness in the past. Um, um, but I think the other thing to look at is is management more broadly as well and, and, and making sure that that work does continue and does happen and one of the ways we're doing that is through your role Georgie in the BTA and to make sure that we are doing work with specific populations the work around veterans the work with musicians as well I think it's been very important but in terms of using our funding if you like and using um, BTA funding for research what we're looking to do is very much change that and look at how we do position it to try and move forward some of those areas that are going to be key so can we find an objective measure can we find a biomarker can we find um, different subtypes of tinnitus that would really push us forward and I think that's very much going to be the focus of our funding from for the next um, short to midterm in particular I think um, in the past I don't think we've focused on that so much because we didn't have this data from the recent pharmaceutical trials. So until those trials happened and until they sadly failed, we didn't know actually how vital some of those things were. And until we started doing that and the, that knowledge and information came out of those trials, it's, it's been a, an area that has been a bit of a struggle to know where to direct resources, I think. so. But now we have that indication. It's it's very much um, an area that I want to see the BTA get more involved in and, and look at how we do pursue in the future. So it's a long-winded answer. I'd say um, we will continue to support psychological studies. It's important that we improve management. You know, It's important that we continue to make sure that people have access to the best management and best support that's available. And so we will continue to advocate for that and make sure that happens. But in terms of actual investment of our funds, we will be looking to do that much more in that in that other space to, to push forward some of that definitions work of tinnitus and looking at how we measure it as well. And that'll help all research into tinnitus. Derek, would you like to add anything to that? I think obviously psychological based treatments are really important and they, they can be quite life changing for some individuals. But actually so we know that they work, we know that they are of benefit to people. But you know, it's only through continued research that we can really optimize it and make sure that they are the best that they can be and that they continually respond to, to the growing need that there is. I think I'd just like to add that people like to have their experiences heard as well. So those psychological studies are a good space for people to talk about their tinnitus and to feel like they're taking part in the push forward in understanding tinnitus and how it can be experienced so differently for different people. The other reality, just to chip in there is a, a psychological trial or a randomized control trial in CBT or mindfulness is something that the BTA can afford to fund. 
a randomized control trial on a pharmacological intervention on a drug is is way beyond our gift to fund so actually there is a little bit of reality in terms of how we can use our money to make the most difference and whilst like i say i think we can make our difference in some areas the reality is the bta is not in a position now where we could invest in a pharmaceutical trial just because of of the money that's needed to do that absolutely and so the next question we got was how important do you believe the field of hearing regeneration to be in the overall quest for a cure? Um, my knowledge on this is a little bit naive. Um, I think the, the easy answer at the moment to say is we don't know. Um, because of the discussion we had on the subtypes, and we don't actually know how important some of those subtypes are, it's quite a challenge to say how much of a difference hearing regeneration would make. You'd hope it sure would. You'd hope that, especially if hearing loss is the cause of someone's tinnitus, that regenerating their ear or, or, you know, reproducing hearing will make a big difference. But at the moment, until we get there, it's, it's really hard to say actually what the difference is, at least from my perspective, Derek. Maybe mm-hmm. we'll be more informed. Mm-hmm. No, I agree that there will be certainly, I think, a subset of people um, for whom this intervention when when it comes to fruition uh will will be of benefit and certainly you know regeneration of hair cells is something that will be life-changing for many mm. um and, and hopefully some who have tinnitus also um can i just ask as well um could you explain what an intervention is oh excuse me so i by default i think when i describe within a research context when i'm talking about treatments i'm talking i i use the word intervention because mm-hmm. to separate it from treatment which is something that you get in a clinic i guess rather than something you get within a clinical trial okay great thank you very much the final question from our social media posts is what is the single biggest obstacle towards finding a cure in your opinion i don't think there's one obstacle i think there are many and interrelate as well so it's it's not as simple as saying you know if we solve this it's it's done i mean you know we've mentioned already two of the key ones in terms of developing a better way to measure tinnitus and also looking at how to subtype or get those those categories um there are issues around the definition we use for tinnitus you know is there a consensus on that does everyone agree actually in what tinnitus is you know if you really want to go back to it we talked about the challenges of defining what a cure was and what that means for people although you know if we ask people what a cure is, they'd jump up and down and say, you know, it's obvious, get rid of the sound, and we, and we agree. But actually, if you were taking a drug for tinnitus, if that drug reduced your tinnitus by 50%, you had to take that drug every day, would that be acceptable? Mm. Would 20% be acceptable? Would 80%? You know, where's that line? And those are really key questions for pharma as well, because they need to know that before they start to develop a drug intervention. If they don't understand, actually where that is and and where the line is almost for the majority of people with tinnitus then they don't know what their market is mm-hmm. so there's some real challenges i think still that we don't know and some of this is only going to be um, um resolved i think by looking at how to get more of a consensus amongst the tinnitus research community and, and the, the broader tinnitus community as well and how we start to move forward on that so for instance you know developing a global consensus on the definition of tinnitus mm. would be a huge step forward but at the moment that's that's not there mm. um i i do think you know that the global question is is really important i think what we lack at the moment within the community is some form of a, a global consortium mm. uh, we don't have uh, a, a big global body to look to um as as our leading experts if you like we are Although I think there's been a lot of effort for, for good collaboration, good networking, what we don't have is, is, is an overarching body 
a go-to body and that body isn't there for organizations like the world health organization for example you know who do they go to in the first instance to say you know we we appreciate tinnitus is a global problem and we want to do something about it Mm -hmm. Uh, and i guess part of the problem the flip side of the problem is is capacity and you know what we're seeing at the moment is a you know a very positive and encouraging increase in the amount of tinnitus research that's being done and being published mm-hmm. but actually compared to other conditions and and the rate of of funding and the rate of investment and and work and publication and the number of people working on other problems other other neurological conditions other health conditions uh we were really really lagging quite far behind mm-hmm. so so we do lack that critical capacity so i do fully believe it's something that we can really conquer we can really really get a grip on um, but it is going to take a lot of really concerted effort and, and increased capacity and so how do you think members of the tinnitus community can help overcome these obstacles um, i think one is to make sure that they're proactive in making the case for more research funding to go into tinnitus so you know, through using the letter that to send to their MPs that you can download from the BTA's website or by um, signing the petition and just making the case that actually increased investments needed is really critical. By supporting research when it happens is, is really vital. Um, and beyond that, I think it is, you know, looking at how we do as a community move forward with some of this, how we do develop that sort of global um, um body if you like that does it and i think patients do have a role in implementing and agitating for that as well mm-hmm. and making sure it happens because i think there is appetite to do it but like derek says it's it's capacity too and and again without someone really saying this needs to happen you know it's it's hard to see how that's going to you know trigger without without that influence and without that um, demand i think as well mm-hmm. well if i'm thinking from a, a research perspective again there, there are very many aspects of research that that and people who have tinnitus can get involved in it doesn't just mean participation you know it, it involvement is, is critical and it's certainly a part of every single thing that we do uh, within our translational research space as we describe it mm-hmm. um so you know patients are critical to really identifying the priority questions and you know ensuring that we are doing the things that patients want us doing mm-hmm. and people who have tinnitus want us doing and that that is the type of research and those questions that are most important to them are actually being addressed. You know, there's also a role for patients and, and people who have tinnitus in in, des- in informing the design of our research, you know, and, and really ensuring that it has the impact that they want it to have mm. and it, it needs to have for us to all to move forward. I'd just like to add, I suppose it's important for people with tinnitus to talk about their experience of it as well. So social media is quite a good place to do that. And it's a good way to meet others who have tinnitus. So the support groups um, that the BTA um, help to facilitate, that's a good space as well to go and talk about the tinnitus. And it's, it helps others within the wider community to understand the impact that tinnitus can have on people's lives. So if you would like to get involved in this discussion, then please send us a tweet or go on Facebook. Um, and the hashtag for this week is hashtag tinnitus week. So now I'm just going to change the tempo a bit. Um, and ask you what's the most obscure description you've heard a tinnitus sound described as so while you have some time to I'll give you some time to think about that and I'll tell you what my um, most unusual description was so this was with an aged veteran and they told me that their tinnitus sounded like a little lizard scurrying around their head I thought it was a really nice description 
that showed people can experience it very differently. Well, that is different, isn't it, Georgie? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, uh, I've, I've met a lot of people who have tinnitus in trials, and, and we do ask them some odd questions sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, a couple of things spring to mind. We, we once asked uh, a series of patients whether they, their tinnitus had a colour. And and some people obviously looked at us like we were mad. Um, <laughs> others were without a blink of an eye. It's pink, or it's right. purple, or it's blue. Mm-hmm. And and so it you know tinnitus had clearly had some kind of an embodiment for them. Mm-hmm. It was it was it was a a thing, and it had a color. Yeah, um, The other that springs to mind was um, some, so one of the standard questions we asked is whether it's in your left ear, your right ear, mm-hmm. or whether it's central, so somewhere in the head. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, had, I had one person who was adamant that actually it wasn't in any of those places. He was at this particular point, and I'm sorry you can't see what I'm doing, <laughs> <laughs> but there's a point in the air just to the right of their head and above their head, and that's where their tinnitus was. It was right there. Wow. I've not heard so that So we didn't have a tick box on the questionnaire for that, so no. we had to write it in. Mm. Develop the questionnaire. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it get so many. I mean, I don't really see them as unusual anymore. I think it's always interesting to to look at the different descriptions and descriptors people use for their tinnitus. Um, I mean, the one that I'm remembering just because you know happened recently was um, you know at our um, tinnitus roundtable event at the House of Commons. Uh, Sam Baines was talking about her tinnitus, and mm-hmm. she describes it as initially she thought it was a spider living in her ear mm-hmm. until she went and had that investigated and realised it wasn't. And I think that's mm-hmm. quite interesting for quite how graphic it was so yeah. for her it was something real for a long time as well and it did feel like it was that mm. that spider that was there there's one other I, i'd just like to mention um, it was when i was giving a talk at the nottingham deaf society um, a few years ago and these were individuals who were um, profoundly deaf from birth mm. so so they didn't really have an auditory experience um mm. and and kind of struggled some struggled to to talk about what what they they felt tinnitus might be or might mm. not be, um, but I had one one chap there who was who was adamant that he he had tinnitus mm. and that he experienced tinnitus, but he certainly he experienced it as a as a bodily sensation, mm. and he literally kind of um, demonstrated the 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 breath and the fact that the tinnitus ran throughout his entire body. That's really interesting. Almost feels like there needs to be a study on this and kind of understanding quite what some of this means. I think absolutely, definitely. The next question is around research challenges. Derek, if you'd like to tell me what you think the key research challenges are within the field of tinnitus at the moment. So I think the, the biggest issue is is clearly one of capacity and that, that we are very um, a slow growing community. You know, we're a very passionate community and, and a really exciting community to work within. However, it is small and growth is slow and part of that comes down to funding um, and funding is always going to be a, you know a critical issue mm-hmm. in terms of capacity and and increased increasing research i guess a contemporary issue for his, us is of course brexit and um, we're starting to already see a, a, some impact of that um, certainly our research group are not receiving applications from from potential phd candidates um, who who are currently living within europe and mm-hmm. uh, so we are our parents perhaps not attracting the talent that we want to attract right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we have certainly a number of us within the UK have been involved in a number of very large EU grants. So it's very positive that the EU have been putting huge amounts of money, actually. Uh, around 13 million euros has mm-hmm. been invested in, in tinnitus 
um, over over the last few years, and we're just now starting to see some results from that from that work actually coming through. Mm-hmm. However, the latest project, um, which was which was launched just this week, doesn't involve any any researchers or any organisations from within the UK, and and I think that's a real shame. And our our, mm-hmm. our EU colleagues do feel that that is a shame also, um, but at the moment there is some. Uh, caution that we, there may be a risk, in fact, involving UK researchers in, in certain grants. Mm. And we've certainly seen that at the BTA as well. So the BTA has been involved in some of those projects in the past and, and aren't involved in, in projects that are going forward. So, yeah, it's, it's very sad to, to, to see that happen. Mm. I think it's, it's a, it is a real blow. It, it's previously, we've talked about the need for better international collaboration and discussion around tinnitus research. And it feels at the moment we're going in the other direction with some of those projects that actually, you know, people who are there who are you know, at the forefront of some of the tinnitus re- research are now being excluded from, from some of that work. I think it's also important to, to look at how, how our funding is actually structured. I mean, we have a very structured research funding um, situation in the UK at the moment. So that kind of basic discovery science that that's really going to lead to, to drug development, that, that's largely funded by the Medical Research Council. Um, I'm funded by the National Institute for Health Research, uh, which is more focused on, on translational research. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I can't shift my focus to, to discovery science. I am not funded to do that. And, and if I was to shift my focus, then, then I would actually risk losing my funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, so I do need to keep, and, and many of us who are funded by, by these large um, grants do need to, to keep our focus uh, right on the, the area of the, the pipeline, if you like, the research pipeline that we have been funded to actually work within. Mm-hmm. So we do have some constraints on what we do. And it also puts a you know an important emphasis on us us talking to each other. So I need to we need to have I think greater stronger connection between the basic scientists, or us translational scientists, and the more clinical scientists. I think another issue as well is that tinnitus research, by its nature, needs to be cross disciplinary. Yes. And a, a, a challenge is, I think, how you do get all those different disciplines involved. So, at the moment, it very much feels like um, neuroscience would would be a really, really, you know, interesting um, area to to get more involved in tinnitus research. And actually, how do we do that? How do we, you know, appeal to that community to say, actually, you know, there are these challenges that that overlap between, you know, what the neuroscientists are looking at at the moment and what would be relevant for tinnitus research and how do we encourage that and how do we make sure that that community understands that that's a- available and that actually there are these potential collaborative partners around to to look at taking it forward. So we've got the knowledge on tinnitus, but how do you help us from a neuroscience perspective, you know, understand that better and how do we how do we partner and not just neuroscience, there's lots of others, but I think that's a that's a good example actually as well. And how do we do that? And, you know, not to sound too glib about it, but how do we make tinnitus research then sound sexy to neuroscientists? Because we need to excite them, we need to interest them, we need to say there are all these huge opportunities Mm -hmm. to almost make a career in tinnitus research. But how do we do that and how do we really, you know, motivate and inspire them to to come along with us and to to join us in that work and that Mm -hmm. debate and look at how they can influence it as well? Absolutely. And I'd like to add as an early career researcher that um, I think some of the challenges can be faced when the funding stops. It's how you then carry on the, so when the funding stops for a project, how you then carry on the conversations um, across disciplines and how you implement the recommendations from that research. And I think once the project stops, you then start another one. It's easy for things to get pushed to one side. So it's really important at that planning stage to plan in those, those later conversations 
But again, that's challenging if you haven't got the networking opportunities within other disciplines. So I think it's important to reach out and also ask those who are higher up than yourself, maybe, or more experienced researchers. Um, ask them to put you in contact with other researchers who might be able to help you to connect with different areas of research. I think there is that. I mean, a researcher recently sort of gave a great example at research um Tinnitus research conferences at the moment feel like you're going to a fireworks party and and you watch all these things sort of flare up mm. and explode and you think well that looks interesting but then it just literally dies because mm. you know that research doesn't have the capacity or or ability to actually say okay so I've done this basic science it looks interesting so so let's look how we do put this into a translational space and actually it just feels that almost you see this presented and then you don't hear from, hear of it again mm. and there's so much it feels as a community at the moment there's lots and lots of different directions that research is going in mm. and it's not particularly coordinated there's not a lot of that thought about how you do do the next step and mm. step after that and ultimately what does this mean in a patient community how does this get there you know mm. we're doing this interesting stuff you know much much earlier on in the in the um, phase but actually you know how do we get it there and, and what does it look like when it does get there and i think some of that mm. thoughts missing at the moment so maybe some um evaluations of research implementation could be useful as well to see what works and what doesn't um, for future projects. Absolutely. Implementation is is a very buzzy, current, growing science, I would say. Um, there are implementation scientists and, and it's, it's attracting a lot of researchers, in fact. Yes. Um, I think there's a lot of communities that we can learn an awful lot from and, and are learning from. Uh, the pain community, so the pain research community, are probably about 20 years ahead of where we are, I think, currently, the tinnitus community, in terms of research and productivity. Mm. Um, but but we're, we're, we can see direct analogies between tinnitus and pain, and, and mm. you know there are things within pain research that have directly informed some current cognitive behaviour therapies for tinnitus, mm. uh, which is really ex ex exciting. Mm. Um, some work pending actually funded by action on hearing loss uh, which will be conducted by by some of my colleagues in nottingham and some um researchers at king's college london mm -hmm. uh, which will now be looking at a, a molecule uh, a protein uh, that's involved that's well understood to be involved in pain mm -hmm. um but actually looking at, at um, molecules that act against that protein um as a potential treatment for tinnitus so mm -hmm. so there is a lot of learning and a potential crosstalk between these disciplines mm -hmm. And whilst there is all the all, are all these challenges, I think it's important to point out some of those that we've overcome recently as well. So we understand more about the need for, for the biomarkers, for the objective mm -hmm. measures, for the subtyping. And it, it does feel like there's more of a discussion and a debate around that and how you push that forward. So that's really mm -hmm. positive. And as well in the management space, we will next month in March have nice guidelines on the practice of tinnitus mm -hmm. or practice management for tinnitus. Part of those guidelines are going to include research recommendations for how we improve tinnitus practice and tinnitus care and management in the UK and, well, in England specifically. And with that will come some research recommendations that funders have to look at and have to think of how they can respond to. Mm -hmm. So actually there are opportunities coming up as well that, that you know, not only for current researchers but for new researchers mm -hmm. to, to look at and consider how to get involved in this space. So, so whilst there are lot of challenges ones we know about more and know more about now there are also opportunities coming up as well so do you think that there are conflicts in the aims of research um so i'm thinking specifically about the aims of a charity so david that's for you 
and for um, academia and universities conflicts might be too strong i think there are challenges um, because sometimes there are slightly different aims um as a charity we want the research done we want it done yesterday and ideally at half the price that we've been quoted um whereas you know the challenges i think within academia to do that once you put it into a a system where you need ethics approval you need you know the papers to 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 maintain relevance and to make sure that you know you're doing that side of 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 your job you know there are i think um challenges in in working together in that because there are you know, whilst you may have a shared aim, the direction and the timing of it may be very different and the mm-hmm. expectation might be slightly different as well, I think. I, I would agree. I think conflict is, is probably not the, the, the most accurate term. Um, I, I can see there are issues, but I think, in fact, the research landscape has been transformed in the last 10 years, mm-hmm. um, particularly in the UK, where, you know, we are now um, required and expected to to address questions that are a priority mm-hmm. that are have been identified as a priority through a very transparent process you know we need to more than ever demonstrate the impact of of the research that we do mm-hmm. it's very exciting that we have you know clinical practice guidelines i mean i think that's mm-hmm. a, a landmark um for for the tinnitus community and really mm-hmm. excited to, to to start addressing the questions mm-hmm. that have been raised within those guidelines um but you know those those have been identified through a very um careful process mm-hmm. um as as being of priority and mm-hmm. and so will attract funding and, and will attract interest yeah uh, so i think more than ever i think we we are more aligned um in in addressing priorities mm. so moving on to the next question um what does the future look like for tinnitus research david would you like to go first answering that um I think from my perspective, what I'd really like to see is the the bio resource or the biobank that um, you know, we discussed um, much earlier and, and looking at how that gets impl- implemented and, and how we move forward with a dedicated bio resource on tinnitus because I think that will allow us to look at trying to answer some of those questions and some of those challenges around biobank about sorry around biomarkers around objective measures and around subtyping in a much more comprehensive way than has been possible in the past and i think those are key challenges that we need to look at as a community and need to look at urgently so i think you know i'd like to see that happen i'd like to see that move forward i think there is a need to look at how we do um, collaborate more as a as a global community and look at how that could work and, and what the opportunities are as well as the challenges um, and the British Tinnitus Association currently has a open grants round for large research projects up to £125,000 so you know I'm really excited to see what projects come through that and what the BTA can support as well. I think again the biobank and, and actually creating a bioresource and starting to collect this really interesting data um, that will that will inform um, future treatment is going to be really really high on our priority list. Certainly something that we will be uh, working very very actively on in, in the coming year. Um, and I would echo again uh, what what we've sp- spoken about earlier and that need for a global voice. You know, I'd love to see uh, a global consortium come together. Mm. And as they say, you know, <laughs> if you want something done. <laughs> <laughs> We'll see how that happens. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think just to add something else in terms of what I'm 
looking forward to seeing more of and especially over the next year is the potential for some genetics work and mm. um, we've seen some really interesting genetics work um, published from um, University College London on looking at the biobank and hearing loss and I think there's some real opportunities to replicate that in tinnitus and and not just looking at UK biobank but also some of the other resources that are out there as well and start some of that really early stage genetics work as well and, and there's a group looking at that and uh, think they'll be going at it it's a million miles an hour as well so hopefully we'll we'll see something of that come from that in the next 12 months too i'd just like to add um the research that i'll be working on in the future so i'm going to be looking at the impact that tinnitus has on professional musicians with both of you (laughs) as part of the team um and there'll be a survey going out within the next month um so if you are a professional musician then please keep your eyes peeled for that um how Musicians UK are funding that project and we're really looking forward to finding out what impact Tinnitus has on musicians. And of course that really leads on as well from the excellent work you did on veterans as well and, and some of the findings from that because although you know we know veterans have Tinnitus actually that's there's some really key findings that have emerged from that as well for recommendations for clinical work and also how to better support veterans with Tinnitus so Absolutely. I don't know if you want to mention a couple of those but I think that was really key work as well. Thank you. Yeah so some of the key recommendations from the research we did with aged veterans within the UK were that they lacked information about tinnitus um, and also that they weren't sure about how to access um, information about tinnitus as well and that they they maybe needed specific services that were tailored to veterans um, and in that, when we were talking to the older veterans, they were saying that, you know, why are you talking to us? We've already got this. Go and talk to the young'uns. Um, and they, a lot of them were saying that they'd be really happy to actually go and deliver training to current serving personnel um, because they had the language and the experiences that the current serving personnel could relate to. Um, if you'd like to read more about that, the full report's available on our website at tinnitus.org.uk. Um, and just to say that that was managed by the Royal British Legion and funded by the Age Veterans Fund. No, thank you. And, you know, obviously we're hoping for similar really good results with the musicians when we do that as well. And Absolutely. whilst we can't talk about some of the other projects that you're involved in, I think it's worth mm-hmm. saying that, you know, we really are looking at how to better understand the impact of tinnitus on different populations and how we can make sure that the service that people receive is the best service that's possible that's available as well so mm-hmm. so now i think you know the research program that you're developing and we're looking to do is is really exciting thank you yes i do too um and i think it fits in with when we talk about the different types of tinnitus and um, you know people do experience it differently so it's good to talk to people and find out their individual experiences whilst we're searching for a cure it's important that we carry on doing that Thank you both very much for joining me today to talk about tinnitus research. Thank you, Georgie. No, thank you. If you want to find out more about anything we've talked about today, you can do so at tinnitus.org.uk. And if you'd like to join in the conversation, please follow the hashtag tinnitusweek. Goodbye and thanks very much for listening.